from Paul to Philemon. If you've missed either of the last two weeks, please, please, please either listen to the sermons online or grab the CDs in the back. Um, not because I want you to hear what I have to say, uh, because these last couple teachings have been crucial for us understanding the direction the church is going. Okay. And the two weeks ago, we came out with a new vision, which was turn the world right side up. Okay. And I talk about that, uh, as well as a new mission statement. The mission statement is the practical, how do we fulfill this vision? How do we change the world around us? And that was knowing him and making him known through the word and discipleship. So please, please, please uh, grab those CDs if you missed either of the last two weeks. Um, it'd take me too long to catch you up to speed. Uh, but right now we're focusing on discipleship. Okay, and that's why we're in this epistle to Philemon. We've been in this epistle for the last two weeks. We'll close it out this week. We're going to focus on discipleship. Then next week, we're going to focus on evangelism because that's really the great commission that Jesus gave the disciples. It's what he gave the church. This is what we're called to do. We're called to preach the gospel. We're called to make disciples. So in this text, in this teaching, we're going to focus on just that, making disciples. See, last week we talked about the three character qualities needed, the basics to be a disciple. And what were those? Does anybody remember what the three points were last week? Think of one. Yeah. Yeah, got to be a lover of Jesus, right? It starts there. If you don't love Jesus, you can't be a disciple, right? It starts that's just the basics. And you can't disciple someone that doesn't love Jesus. Remember another one? Have faith toward Jesus. We got to have faith toward Jesus or faith in Jesus. I have to believe in Jesus to become a disciple of Jesus. And then the third one was have faith toward the saints, right? There has to be a, a, a faith in the body of Christ as well. And we talked about all certain people say, I love Jesus, I have faith in Jesus, but I'm not about the church. Um, well, that's part of it. The church is part of it. He refers to the church as his body. We're supposed to imitate him, not just as an individual, but as a body of Christ. So we represent him. Um, you may have heard the illustration in the past, um, we're actually the bride of Christ, so you don't go to somebody's house, uh, your guy friend, and say, hey, I like you, but I hate your bride, right? That friendship's not going to last very long, yeah? Okay, yeah, I'm cool with you, but I hate your wife. It's like, all right, get out of my house. I want nothing to do with you. It's the same thing with Jesus. We're his bride, so we have to have faith toward the saints as well as faith toward Jesus. So in this teaching, we're going to go back through a few of the verses that we've been through. Again, we'll close out the chapter, but this time we're taking a different approach. Last week, we focused on those key three character qualities for a disciple. This time, we're going to talk about six things uh, really needed to be a discipler. And we're going to pull these six things from what Paul communicates to Philemon and how he approaches him and how he goes about this whole epistle. So if you would please pray with me and then we'll dive into the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, God. We thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us Lord, that you would make us disciples that make disciples, God, that you would encourage us and give us the boldness to, to, to invest in others. Lord, that's what you call us to do. It's not about, it's not about us. 
It's about you um, loving you and loving others, God. So I pray that you would equip us to do just that in your name. Amen. All right. So the title of this teaching is The Art of Discipleship, The Discipler. Okay, so now we're focused on the discipler as I'm going to talk to you as if you're the discipler because you are the discipler. All right, I'm the discipler. You're the discipler. We're all called to be the discipler. That means we're investing into someone else. Okay, and now this could be, uh, and I'll mention it. This could be a friend. This can be a family member. This could be a child. This could really be anyone, but we're called to commit what God's entrusted to us to other faithful men and women. That's what 2 Timothy 2.2 says. Okay, Philemon, we'll skip the first uh, three verses. Uh, We did that intro. I want to get to verse four. Let's start there. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Who's he speaking to? Philemon, okay? Hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Those are those character qualities that Philemon has. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been afreshed by you, brother. Look at how Paul approaches this epistle. Look at how he communicates to Philemon. He starts by commending him. He said, dude, we're hearing about everything that's going on in your life and in this church that's in your house. Dude, God's doing a lot. and We're hearing about your love for Jesus and your love for the saints and your faith toward Jesus and your faith toward the saints. And God's doing such a work there. And that's where he starts this epistle. He's commending Philemon. He's building him up. And look at back at, at, at verse 7. Look what he says. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been bef- refreshed by you, brother. He says, we... The saints have been refreshed by you. The transforming work that God's been doing in your life, it's affecting other people. And he's saying, I'm writing this epistle to you. Look at verse 6, that the sharing of your faith may become effective. I'm writing this epistle to you to disciple you, to encourage you, to challenge you, to grow in your faith so that you can be a better minister. Because regardless of of my relationship with Onesimus, I'm writing this letter mainly for you because of my love towards you. And this whole letter is really seasoned with love. And look at what he says in this next verse, in verse 8. Therefore, I thought I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such as one, such a one as Paul, the aged, And now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Look what he says here. He's commending him. He's encouraging him. He's building up. We've been refreshed by you. We're hearing about all these things that are happening in your church. And then he says, I could command you because I'm your spiritual authority. I'm your spiritual leader, but I'm not going to command you. I'm going to appeal to you and I'm going to appeal to you in love for love's sake is what he says, which brings me to the first of six. Appeal to them in love. When I say them, I'm talking about whoever God places in our life to disciple. That could be, again, friends, family, children, whatever it is. Them, 
Whoever the disciple is in the context. In this context, it's Philemon. So we're, we're to appeal to them in love. We might be a father or a mother or a boss or whatever, but we're not called to, to lord our leadership over someone. We're called to appeal to them, to inspire them with love for the love of Christ compels us. Love compels us. It motivates us. So if we know that the love of Christ compels people, we should use that same love to do just that, to compel people, to appeal to them, to do a certain thing that's not only best for us, but really what's best for them, because that's why Paul's writing this epistle, so that the sharing of your faith will be more effective. I want you to receive Onesimus, and we'll get to that later. I want you to receive Onesimus, get over any bitterness or resentment that you may have towards him because perhaps he stole from you and he was absolutely a runaway slave. We want you to get over that thing so you can be a more effective minister in this whole letter again. It's seasoned with love. He's appealing to him in love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, it says that love is the most excellent way. It's the most excellent way. And that's why Paul does this. He says, for love's sake, I'm going to approach it this way. I'm not going to command you. I'm going to appeal to you. I'm not going to lord over you. I'm going to ask you in love to do this certain thing, not just for me, but for you. Paul's genuinely concerned about Philemon and his spiritual walk. He actually has love for him, And you can see that throughout the words that he communicates to him and even these first four, uh, these first nine verses. It's better to inspire someone with love than command them with harshness. When we command people with harshness, we don't always get the, the response that we desire. Okay. Now, love, I'll talk about it later. Sometimes we can be overly loving and love doesn't always look like what we think it looks like. And I'll discuss that later. But starting this off, appeal to them in love. Look at Philemon, verse 9, that second part of verse 9. Look at what Paul says. He reintroduces himself. Being such as one, such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Okay, who did Paul used to be? What was Paul's old name? Saul, right? Saul of Tarsus. And what is that name synonymous with? A persecutor, a, a Pharisee, a, a hypocrite? Even in the words Paul uses here, there's a lesson that we can learn from it. He says, I'm Paul. I'm not Saul anymore. I'm Paul. I'm the new man. I was the old man, but now I'm Paul. I'm the new man, the new name that God has given to me. And I'm aged. He says, Paul the aged. And he's not just talking about how old he is. He's talking about his spirituality. I've matured in my faith. I have a, a, a spiritual authority. I've become Paul. I'm no longer Saul. I'm no longer the hypocritical Pharisee that persecutes Christian. I'm Paul. I'm aged. And then look what he says. A prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? Christ is my master and I'm enslaved to him. So whatever he tells me to do, I do it. That's a bold statement to say I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That means disobedience is not an option. The implication here is that 
Paul is obeying, he's doing whatever Jesus is telling him to do. That includes writing this letter. The Lord is compelling Paul to write this letter. This letter is not just Paul's ideas and what Paul wants. This letter is truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Lord moved him to write this letter. So not only did the Lord move him to write this letter, that was an act of obedience, but Paul's purpose to be obedient in everything that Jesus asks him to do as a prisoner of Christ. You know what Paul has? He has moral authority. He's not just telling him to do something. We discussed this last week. He's asking him to do something that God had him do. Receive someone back that you have bitterness and resentment towards. Forgive them and reconcile with them. As a prisoner of Christ, being obedient to what the Lord tells him, Paul has moral authority. Which brings me to the second point. Retain moral authority. Retain moral authority. It's so important. When I say moral authority, uh, essentially what I mean is living out the word of God. I'm not practicing hypocrisy where... Like the Pharisees where I'm saying one thing and doing another. Jesus says in Matthew 23, don't, he says, he says, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Okay, that's hypocrisy. Paul, he was no longer a hypocrite. He led by example. Everything the Lord tells him to do, he does it. He lives out the word of God. And who do you think he learned this from? Jesus, right? We look at the Sermon on the Mount. We studied it months ago. Um, but in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus communicates his longest sermon that we have in the Gospels, all three of those chapters. And that's a tough sermon to listen to. When you hear what you, if you lust after a woman, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. If your hand causes you to sin, you hear all these things that Jesus says, you're like, oh my gosh, this is impossible. I remember reading that the first time, like, I don't get any of this. Like, there's no way I could do these things. But that's the point, because what's impossible with man is possible with God. You can't do these things apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do these things. And Jesus was not only fully God, but he was fully man. Not only did he communicate these things, he did these things. And we see immediately after he preaches this powerful message on the Sermon on the Mount, he lives it out. Right off the bat, he comes off the mountain in Matthew chapter 8. And what does he do? He encounters a leper who's in need and he heals him. Then he encounters the centurion and heals the centurion's servant. And there's so many things. And we taught about it uh, again a few months ago. But there's so many things even in those few verses that Jesus is doing exactly what he just taught in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. So this moral authority that Paul has, he only has it because Jesus had it. And he learned it from Jesus himself. See, Paul and Jesus, they both had moral authority. But they were also both very relational. They knew how to relate to people. See, Paul, he appeals to him in love, but then, hey, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm doing it. You know, I'm living out my faith, in other words. So he appeals to him in love. There's this relational side, but there's also this authoritative side. Now, the problem with us as humans is we tend to fall on one side or the other. What do I mean? 
Some of us are on the extreme authoritative side, meaning I tell you what to do and you better do it. You do everything I say. That's what you say. I could command you, but I'm not. Okay. So we get on this, do what I say, do what I say, do what I say. And it gets like this overbearing, lording over people thing. And you know what that does? It pushes people away. Right. But then there's also the relational people. Raise your hands if you're one of those relational people. Some of you. Wow, we got a bunch of authoritative people in here. Great. <laughs> I'll pray for you. Um, so the, you got the relational people and, and what they tend to do. Now think in the context of discipleship. They get so close to people. They'll vent all their problems to people. They'll, they'll just tell them about themselves and everything that's going on that they become so relational that they lose respect. So when you're investing in someone, hey, you have to have that person that you're talking uh, uh, about your problems with, that Barnabas, if you will. But I'm talking in the context of, uh, of someone you're investing into. You don't want to be so relational that it costs you respect. Because sometimes there's things that we just shouldn't share with certain people. And those things should be shared with other people. Maybe the person that's our accountability partner. Or maybe the person that's investing into us. But I'm not just spilling my guts to every person I invest into. And this balance of being relational and authoritative is difficult to find. Because some of you are on that authoritative side. Some of you are on that relational side. But the Lord, he had the perfect balance. He knew when to be relatable. He's called a friend of sinners. He's called a friend of the disciples. But at the same time, the disciples knew when it was time to be serious. And they knew when it was time to, all right, we're fellowship and we're having fun. Jesus drew that perfect line in the sand. There's times to joke around and there's times to be serious and different. Different circumstances call for different things, but the point for us is to find the balance. Now, um, I've spent years trying to find this balance. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to find this balance. But I think with my relationship with Geo, for example, I think I, I, I have a pretty decent balance there. See, Geo, he'll come over to the house and uh, we'll have fellowship, we'll eat, we'll, we'll watch movies, we'll do whatever, and we'll joke around. And we'll say some things and cut up or whatever. Um, but Gio respects me. And there's a certain way that we'd be at home and uh, maybe a different way that we would be at church in front of people. Because he knows, hey, I might joke with him about certain things because I've known him for so long. And we have that relationship. But it's not maybe okay for someone else to walk into that conversation and say the same types of things to me or to him. So there's this balance in being relational and authoritative and that moral authority comes from just that, doing what we say we're going to do. I believe Gio has respect for me because he knows I'll never ask him to do something that I'm not willing to do. I'll never say, Gio, go do this if I'm not willing to do it. And he knows that from me over the years that, hey, he's not just asked me to do something that he doesn't want to do. He's asking me to do something that, that he's done already or that he's going to do with me. And there's this balance between, okay, we need to establish moral authority, but we want to find the balance between authoritative, uh, being authoritative and, and being relational. And we can do it with our kids uh, sometimes as well. I don't have kids. I have puppies. Um, we got a kid on the way, but 
I see it all the time with parents. A lot of times you'll have fathers that are one or the other. You'll have a father that's so authoritative and so critical and always speaking down to their children that what happens? Their kids want nothing to do with their dad. They don't want that relationship. They're like, dad, you're always like lording over me and lording over me. And then you got other dads that are so relational that their parents, that their kids don't respect them. They're like, dude, I don't need a friend. I need a dad. And there's a balance there. Yes, we're called to be friends with those that we're investing into, but we need to make sure that we're maintaining moral authority, that we're maintaining respect. It's a fine line, but there is a line. And Jesus drew the perfect line so we can look to him in the scriptures to understand where the line's drawn. Continuing on, we're not going to look to the scriptures right now. Be another time. Philemon chapter 10. Sorry, verse 10. I keep doing that. I did that last service too. Philemon verse 10 says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. He's appealing to him in love for Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart. So he sent an Onesimus back to his old slave master, the guy that likely stole from him, but certainly ran away from him. Okay, he's a runaway slave. Look at verse 13. Whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf, if on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, but your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. What's Paul doing here in this text? He's challenging Philemon. He's challenging Philemon to receive this guy that probably stole from him and ran away from him. A criminal runaway slave. We talked about this last week. He likely had some bitterness and resentment towards him. If someone stole from me, I'd probably be like, yo, I don't know if I want to be in relationship with you. But that's what Paul's challenging him in. He says, not only do I want you to receive him, I don't want you to receive him as a slave. I want you to receive him as a brother. It's like, what? One thing to forgive him, another thing to be friends with him. He's like, no, no, no. You're called to be friends with this guy and not just friends, a brother in the Lord. It's like, man. Last time I heard from this dude or saw him, he was taking my stuff running out the back door. And now you want me to befriend this guy? I'm still trying to forgive him. And I don't know if that was Philemon's mentality, but it probably would have been mine. But see, Paul, he's challenging Philemon to grow in his faith. Why? So that he can be a more effective minister for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this brings me to the third point. Simply challenge them. Challenge them, challenge the people that you're investing into, whether it's your children or that friend or that person that God brings into your life or whoever it is, it could could be your wife. It could be anyone. We're called to challenge them. See, 
Paul challenged Philemon. Why? So that he would grow. He challenged him to change. Raise your hands if you're perfect in here. James is the only one. (laughs) Called you out. (laughs) Raise your hand if you're not perfect in here. So you need to change. Every one of you that's not perfect, you need to change. Me too. Hand raised. I need to change. But when someone tells us that we need to change or they correct us, what happens? What are you, I don't need to, you need to change. I don't need to change. You need to change. I like who I am. Like, why do you like who you are? You're not perfect. You need to change. We're called to become perfect. The Lord's transforming us into his image. So if we're not perfect, we need to change. And recognizing that we need to change, we got to call other people to change. We have to challenge them to change. But that's the problem. People don't always like to change. They don't like things different. They don't like you telling them about themselves. Who like warmly welcomes correction in their life? Like, dude, tell me about myself. I'm up here. Let's do the hot seat. Tell me what you think about me, the things you hate about me. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. Why? Because I don't like that. I don't like you telling me about myself. I know I need it though. And there's certain times and certain circumstances where it's like, no, no, no. They've corrected me and I received that. I need to be challenged in my faith because I'm not perfect. I'm not exactly like Jesus, but I want to be. I want to become more like Jesus. And that's not going to happen, though, until someone challenges me to become more like Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to challenge people to become more like Jesus. That's what Paul's doing here. Now, certain students uh, that I've had in the past, um, they, same, don't always receive these challenges well when you correct them, when you tell them about themselves. In fact, Sonia, who's just up here, used to think I hated her. Now, you guys know me at this point. Like, would you ever see me hating anyone? Like, come on. In all sincerity, though, (laughs) Sonia actually thought that I hated her because I would correct her and challenge her because I saw potential in her and I knew who she could become. And she's a very strong-willed person and she has so many gifts and there were certain areas in her life that I challenged her, hey, This has got to stop. You got to grow in this specific thing. And I would push her because she's strong. And I knew that I could push her. And eventually, you know what? She realized that I love her. She knows I love her. I'm doing Gio and Sonia's wedding because they both know that I love them. So at first, people don't always enjoy the challenge, but later on in life, sometimes they appreciate it. I had another student, her name was Soraya, and she was in my small group. I love this girl. She was awesome. Very gifted in so many ways, um, very sensitive. Uh, I was hard on her, though. And, and, and you're different with different people. Some people need more grace. You probably have kids that are like that. And some people need more truth, right? Because they're thinking about lies, meditating on lies, living in lies. They need to know the truth. They don't see themselves the way that that they really are portrayed. And with Soraya, I would challenge her and I would correct her. She used to think I was like mean, kind of. Why is he hard on me and he's not as hard on you? Because that's what she needed in that time. And you know what? About a year uh, later, she wrote me this email and I wish I could read it to you. It's so powerful. She said to me, because I didn't even really knew that she, know, I didn't know at that point that she felt that way during the term. And she said to me, she goes, you were, you were so hard on me and you challenged me and corrected me so much, but I know you did it because you love me. 
I realize that now and everything you challenged me in has come up again later in my life. And I'm so grateful that you challenged me in those areas. I know that was the Lord working through you. And she wrote this powerful email to me. Literally, it brought me to tears. I'm like, oh my goodness. Now, challenging people to change, it's not always easy. It doesn't always feel good. And we like want to, to, to comfort people and we want to, uh, like, uh, uh yeah, I'll challenge you, but uh, I want to soften it up a little bit. That's not what we see in Jesus. And when we look at the message of Jesus to the disciple, the message for the disciple is to come and die. He says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross daily. What does that mean? Be obedient to the point of death. That's what he's saying here. The disciples knew that. He says, if you want to save your life or if you want to find your life, you got to lose your life. So there's this reality that Jesus is calling each and every one of us to die. Now, I'm not talking about a, 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 a practical death like we should all go, go kill ourselves. That's absolutely not what I'm saying. And don't take this out of context, okay? This is the death to self. This is the death of the flesh. This is the death of the old man. We're supposed to die to the old man that we may become the new man, put to death the old man. So when there's any remnants of the old man that come up or get displayed in our life, hey, that's... He's still not dead yet. He needs to die. There's still part of him that keeps resurrecting himself. There's still part of him that's not dead yet. But as we disciple others, so often because of our love for people, we'll tend to get in the way of that call to die. Bonhoeffer says it like this in The Cost of Discipleship. He says, when God calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he's called all of us. You wouldn't be here if you weren't called of the Lord by the Lord. He calls us to die to ourselves. And again, as the Lord walks us through that process, as he continues to kill the old man, we on the outside looking in at someone's life can say, man, they're going through this really hard time. I need to comfort them. I need to be there for them. I need to make this a little easier for them. And that can be true in certain circumstances, but a lot of times we can get in the way of that calling to die to make things a little easier. And sometimes we can get in the way of the will of the Lord in that specific person's life. Let me explain. It's in the scripture. If you look at Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, uh, on several occasions, God had called Paul to Jerusalem. He told him how many things he must suffer for his namesake. Okay, so Paul knows that this road isn't going to be easy with the Lord. The first time he meets the Lord in Acts chapter 9, that's one of the things he tells him. I'll show you how many things you must suffer for my namesake. Super encouraging. That's my calling. Great. He had the ministry of long suffering, but he embraced it. And look what happens in Acts chapter 20. Verse 22, he says, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. How encouraging. Paul says, all I know is I'm bound in the spirit. The Holy Spirit is saying that Chains and tribulations await me. Suffering awaits me. And this is what the Lord has called me to. That's what the Lord had called Paul to. The Lord was calling Paul to die. 
Now look what happens in Acts chapter 21 as he comes upon these uh, disciples on his way to Jerusalem. If you look at Acts chapter 21, verse 4, it says, In finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Wait a minute, contradiction? Paul just said he's bound to the Spirit, supposed to go to Jerusalem. Now, these disciples are saying, filled with the Holy Spirit, saying he's not supposed to go to Jerusalem. What many scholars suggest, and through my studies, what I believe is happening here is there's a misinterpretation of what the Holy Spirit is saying. The Holy Spirit is likely telling the disciples, Paul's going to die if he goes to Jerusalem. So the disciples take that and go, Paul's not supposed to die. He's not supposed to go to Jerusalem. It's not that the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. It's that he's saying, if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to die. Look what plays out in this text. Then this prophet Agabus has this encounter with him. If you look at verse 10, Acts 21. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. They're literally pleading with Paul. Don't don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do what God has called you to do. That's what they're doing. Look what happens in verse 13. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we see saying the will of the Lord be done. See what happens? God's calling Paul to die. And the disciples, through the Holy Spirit, they understand that this death is going to come upon them, so, upon him. So, them thinking that they're loving Paul, they say, don't go to Jerusalem. That's what love looks like to them. But their love towards Paul is actually not love at all because that love that they think they're displaying is preventing him from fulfilling what God has called him to. And we can do this. Our love for people, it doesn't always look for like comfort and coddling, okay? Yeah, when your child cries or whatever, yeah, there's times where it's good to comfort them. If there's someone in your life, I've seen many adults cry. Um, sometimes there's the time, okay, the comfort and console, and sometimes there's the time, hey, they need to walk through this thing. And as hard as it is for me to watch them walk through this, this is what the Lord has them in this certain uh, situation in the scenario because he's trying to grow them because he's challenging them and I know this is painful and I want to be there and there's part of that struggle of okay when am I there for them and comforting them and when am I letting them go through their situation I'll give you an example I've used this uh, on a Wednesday service before many of you come on Wednesdays but not all of you uh, but I think this illustration will help you understand a little better so before I came to know the Lord. God was doing stuff in my heart. I was strung out on drugs completely. I found out about this place called Calvary House and I set up an appointment um, to have an interview to be taken into this place. And uh, basically it was like, you go, you have the interview and then they decide within a couple days and you go into the ministry. Now I go to this interview and the leadership there 
I already kind of knew this, but they're telling me, hey, here's the rules. You're waking up at 430 anymore every morning. You're working till about six o'clock at night. You're doing Bible studies at night. No cigarettes, no girls, no nothing. This might not sound bad to you, but at that time for me, it was horrible. Okay. So because I was caught up in all those things. So none of this stuff, very structured environment. And you know what? I was ready. I was ready to go. It's like, I know this is what I need. You know what happened? My mom overheard the interview and we got in the car. We had a conversation. You know what she told me? I can understand why you wouldn't want to go. I get it. That's pretty hard. That's pretty tough. You know what I did? Took advantage of what she said. Okay, mom, you're going to let me stay at the house as a drug addict for a while and like try to get back on my feet. And essentially was like, yeah, I get it. She was trying to display love for me. But you know what ended up happening? Within two weeks, I overdosed twice. One of the times, uh, I literally believe that I died. Okay, that's my personal belief. I can't prove it. Uh, but I'd overdosed many times before. But this specific time, um, I came to consciousness four hours later. I'd been out cold for four hours. I remember when I did my thing and I remember I was supposed to be at a place and then it was like 1230. Okay, and I came to and I was just covered in fear, a fear that I can't even describe. I believe it was the fear of the Lord. And the first thing that came into my mind was God just brought you back to life. And a week later, I entered into Calvary House and I haven't turned back since. But this is the point. My mom thinking that she was loving me, she tried to comfort me and it almost killed me. It literally almost killed me. Because God was calling me to something that was very difficult, that was extremely challenging, but it was God's will for my life. And we can sometimes get in the way of what God calls people to. Because our perspective of love doesn't always line up with God's perspective of love. We think of lovey-dovey comfort and God's like, no, 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 no. They need the love and truth. And the truth is they need to change. And I alone know exactly what they need to change, to become the man or woman that God's called them to be. Now, when we challenge people in these areas, or we even step back and allow the Lord to challenge people in these areas, the reality of it is, a lot of times people, again, they don't like getting pushed, they don't like getting challenged in their faith, so they'll walk away. Literally, they'll walk away from the Lord. And I've seen this many times, but when you look at the scriptures, we have to be okay with people walking away. We have to be okay with telling people the truth and challenging them in their faith. And they saying, hey, I'm not cut out for this. Why? Because Jesus did the same thing. When you look at John chapter 6, specifically verses 66 and 67, uh, in that text, Jesus just said a hard saying to the multitudes that were following him. He, they said, he said, Eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. It's like, what the heck? And you know what happened? But if you're like, dude, I'm not going to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They misunderstood him and they walked away. And you know what Jesus said to the disciples? You want to walk away too? Go for it. And Peter, I love this. Probably my favorite thing Peter ever said. He said, to whom shall we go, Lord? You alone have the words to eternal life. Jesus in that moment he drew the line in the sand. He said, hey, I'm going to challenge people in what I communicate and what I want them to do. And if they're not up for the challenge, then they're not worthy to follow me. He did it with the rich young ruler, right? If you're not ready to give up your possessions, 
because that was his idol, his possessions, his material things. If you're not willing to give up those things to follow me, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. What did the rich young ruler do? He walked away sorrowfully, the Bible said, immediately regretful, knowing what he should have done and walking away in regret, sorrowful. Now, some suggest that that rich young ruler was Mark. We don't know that for sure, but there's many theologians that believe that. Now, if that's the case, if he was Mark, what we see here is the Lord challenged him. He wasn't up to the challenge at the time, but later on, he came back and he wrote a gospel. I would love if that was Mark, but it's a huge point to make and important for us to consider. Sometimes when we challenge people and they walk away, it doesn't mean that they'll walk away forever. Sometimes they're just not ready for the challenge. Now, With that, we have to be very discerning in how we challenge people and how we correct people because people aren't ready for like, this is wrong with you, 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 just like throwing darts, like all these different things are wrong with you and you got to change everything. It's like, whoa, no, I'm not ready. Yeah, I wouldn't be either if you came at me like that because the Holy Spirit convicts perfectly. So there's also this discernment in, okay, we're gradually challenging these people that God brings into our life be in meeting them where they're at. So often fathers want their children to be like them and better. And it's like, wait, they're just children. They're not there yet. They haven't had the same life experiences. So there's this balance that even needs to happen as we challenge the people that God brings into our life. But remember, this is always the case. This is always the truth that God is calling each and every one of us, each and every one of them to die to their self. We got to be in on board with that calling as hard as it may be picking it up in philemon verse 12 i'm going to go back uh, through a couple of these verses between uh, 12 and 18 look what he says i am sending him back you therefore receive him that is my own heart you see what he says about onesimus that's my own heart philemon receive onesimus as my own heart Point number four, think of them as your own heart. Think of them, those that you invest into, as your own heart. Now, that might be easy to do with a child that's, you know, blood and flesh. It might be different when it's a stranger. But this was a stranger to Paul, Onesimus was, until he met him, brought him to the Lord, and now he's investing into him. And right off the bat, he says, this is, he's part of my heart. I have this deep, intimate connection to him. There's a spiritual and emotional connection that we share, that we have together. This is the connection that we're called to have with those that we're investing into, because if we're not doing it in love, then we might as well not do it at all. We're doing it in, in vain. We have to think of them, consider them as our own heart. Now, I get this. I can understand this in Patmos and the young adults that I would disciple. It's a four month term and it's go, 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 go. You're literally investing all of your time, all of your effort, all of your energy into others. Now, many of you parents could probably relate to this, right? You're like four months. I've been doing it for 14 years. But in all sincerity, we're, we're, we're investing all this time into these people in hopes that they'll grow and be transformed into the image of Christ. And you know what happens on graduation day? At first, yay, they're gone. I get a vacation, a little free time. And then about four or five days go by. So about a week or two, 
I get really sad. I miss them. I recognize, hey, some of these guys I'm not going to see anymore. I'll never see these girls again. And it's like a piece of me leaves with them. It's like, man, that's my, my heart. I invested so much time. I have love for them. And now they're gone. So not only are they called to be a part of a piece of our hearts, if we have this mentality, if we think like this, we'll take advantage of the time that we have with them. Me knowing that and walking through that term after term after term has changed my perspective about the time that I have with them over those four months. It's like, all I got is four months. And literally, I I won't see some of these kids ever again. So how am I going to make the most out of these four months? And it's that mentality that I'm purposing to love them to the end because that's what Jesus did. In John chapter 13, verse 1, the day before, night before his crucifixion, Before he washes the disciples' feet, it says he loved them till the end. He knew his time was up. He knew his time was short. And he loved them every moment that he had with them. He took advantage of, he was intentional about, and he poured out his life for the disciples. He poured out his life before he even gave his life. He loved them to the very end. Those that God brings into our life, we've got to love them to the very end, whether that's your child that's getting ready to leave to go away to college. Or that's a, a friend that's been staying with you lately. Or a family member that you're just visiting. We don't know when the end's going to come. So we've got to take advantage of every moment and love them, purpose to love them to the end. Philemon verse 13 He says, whom I wish to keep with me, speaking of Onesimus, that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Look at what he's saying here. He says, I'm sending him to you, but I want to keep him. I would rather keep him. I wish to keep him with me, but it's not about what I want. It's about what God wants. So Paul, he holds Onesimus with an open hand because he realizes this is Onesimus, is, Onesimus, Onesimus, is, Onesimus is not his. Onesimus is God's. Which brings me to the fifth point. Deny your desires for their benefit. This can connect to so many different things, but I'll keep it in context. Deny your desires for their benefit. He wants to keep Onesimus, but he's willing to let him go because he knows what's best for him and what's best for the gospel. Whether it's children or people we're discipling, we got to hold them with an open palm. It's easy for us when people are a part of our hearts, when we love someone dearly, that we want to hold on to them so tight, but they're not ours. We're just borrowing them from God. They're gods and God has a perfect plan for them. And there may come a time in that person's life that you love that he calls them to go do something else. And a lot of times that's a child, but it could be someone that we're discipling. And the reason why this is so important is because God didn't create that person for us. He didn't gift that person for us. He created that person for his glory he gifted that person for not the edification of me but the edification of the body of the body of christ so if god sees fit that that person can be used in a greater measure elsewhere then 
God's will be done. But this can be hard too. Many of you were here a few Sunday, well, not a few, probably a couple months, a few months now. Time's flying. Uh, when Luke Patterson, my, my, my good friend that we prayed out and sent out, uh, Luke, um, I've been investing into for two or three years and he's become such a dear friend. And literally I still FaceTime with him all the time. I didn't want Luke to go. I wanted him to stay, but I had to be very careful in how I communicated to him because if I told him, dude, you got to stay, he might have listened to me. But he's not mine, he's the Lord's. And I knew that from the beginning. I got to hold him with a, a open palm. If God sees fit that he goes and is involved with college ministry elsewhere, I got to be okay with that. Now a piece of my heart's missing. And I talk to him on a regular basis. And I'm even careful about, I'll throw little jokes out there. Hey bro, you should come back. We got an extra room. Yada, yada, yada. Like I'll, I'll mention little things like that here and there, joking around with him. But he knows my heart for him is that he does what God's called him to do for my own selfish pleasure i would like to have him because he's useful for ministry and he's a great friend but what god wills is far greater than what i will and i have to be willing to let him go we got to be willing to let the people we invest into even if you poured your whole life into them they're not yours you're just borrowing them philemon we're going to skip a few verses uh jump to 18 he says But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Look at what Paul's doing here. Um, So there's this is where that indication comes that he probably stole something from him. He says, hey, if he's wrong, if he owes you anything, I'll pay you back for it. What is Paul doing here? He's burying his brother's burdens, right? It's Galatians chapter six, verse two says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of of christ we're called to bear each other's burdens he's bearing the burdens of his brother onesimus but he's not just bearing his burdens and saying i'll pay for you galatians chapter 6 verse 2 um (laughs) i knew someone was asking in their mind um he's not only bearing the burdens of onesimus but he's bearing the burdens for a specific purpose he's trying to bring restoration and reconciliation back to this relationship back to the relationship between philemon and onesimus why because he knows because he wrote god has given us the ministry of reconciliation it's second corinthians chapter 5 verse 18 you can write it down Second uh, Corinthians five eighteen it says that 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 God has given us the ministry of reconciliation and there's really three parts to this ministry of reconciliation. The first part is we're called to reconcile people to God. That word reconciliation uh, we talked a lot about it on Wednesday service, but it, it means to restore friendly relations. We're called to share with people the gospel and what it means, what it takes to to have friendly relations with the the God of this universe, the God of creation again. But we're also to be reconciled with one another. Anybody that we have bitterness or resentment towards, we're called to reconcile our differences and restore friendly relations. But there's an also, uh, what's happening here is we're called to reconcile people to each other. 
So if one person has beef with another person or whatever, we're called to, hey, hey, this isn't right. This is causing division amongst the body of Christ, whether that's in your household or this church body here. And there needs to be a reconciliation here. We need to talk through these things and get through these issues so that there can be forgiveness and restoration and ultimately uh, uh, reconciliation that those friendly relationships can be restored. And that's what Paul's doing here. Hey, I'm willing to sacrifice my material things to bring restoration and reconciliation to this relationship. He's being self-sacrificial because he recognizes he has this ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, I, Paul, And writing with my own hand, I will repay not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Okay. At first glance, we can read this section specifically where Paul says not to mention to you that you owe me even more, even your own self besides. What is he saying? You owe me your life. You owe me your soul. And we could look at that and be like, dang, Paul, you're like really like exercising your authority and maybe even taking advantage of your authority with Philemon. You're saying, yeah, I'll pay this thing off, whatever Onesimus owes you, but the reality of Philemon, you owe me yourself. You, you, you owe me your soul. I was the one that brought you to the Lord. So you owe me big time. But we have to remember context. Paul's asking Philemon to receive a criminal, a thief, that's a runaway slave. What's the punishment for that crime in this culture? It's capital punishment. So Paul's doing anything and everything he can to prevent Onesimus from being put to death. So he's making it personal with Philemon. Hey man, if he owes you anything, put it on my account, but recognize I'm still your authority. I'm the one that brought you to the Lord. But we, what we see Paul doing, he's still appealing to him. He's not commanding him. He's exercising his authority, but he's not taking advantage of his authority, which brings me to the sixth and final point. Exercise authority, but don't take advantage of it. Exercise authority, but don't take advantage of it. It's one thing as a spiritual leader to exercise authority and we're called to, but it's easy to take advantage of the authority that we have. Oh, I'll make you do this. I'll make you do that because I can. But that's not right. That's not the heart of the Lord. That's not the heart of Paul. That's not what he's doing in this epistle. He's exercising his authority, but he's very careful with his words that he's not abusing his authority. See, All authority is placed by God. We know that from Romans chapter 13, verse 1. God places authority over our lives and he actually gives us a level of authority. If you're a parent or whatever, if you have anyone under under you, God has given you a measure of authority. And he gives us that authority to exercise. He wants us to be an authority 
in other words, but he doesn't want us to abuse authority. Because when we look at exercised authority, the greatest example that we can ever see is Jesus. And Jesus was what? Jesus was a servant. He didn't come to this earth to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. In John chapter 13, one of his last conversations with the disciples, the night before uh, he's arrested, put to death the next day. So as the days go on, the things that he's communicating are, 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 are super important. Think about this. If you had one week left to live with your families, you would probably consider the most important things to communicate to them, right? Right? You'd probably think about, okay, I got a week left. I'm going to tell them everything I need to tell them for them to be successful in their life, right? Jesus does the same thing. And in fact, you got about 33% of the gospels focus on the last week of Jesus's death. Jesus's life, I mean, before his death. Because the things that he's saying leading up to his death are so important. He knows, unlike us, he knew when he was going to die. He knew he only had so much time left. So there's these specific messages and themes that he's trying to get across. And serve service is one of them. Look what he says in John chapter 13. After he washes the disciples' feet. In verse 15, he says, For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Look what he's saying. I've given you an example of what leadership ought to look like. Yes, a a, a servant might not be greater than his master, and a master might be greater than his servant, but because a master might be greater than a servant, it doesn't mean that that master can't be a servant. And the master is called to be the servant of all. And if he's our master and that's the way that he led, then that's the way that we ought to lead too. If you're not willing to serve the people God entrusts to you, then you're not worthy to lead them. We see an example of this. This is where we'll close. In 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, to give you a little context, uh, you had David was uh, the second king. Saul, David, now you have David's uh, son Solomon who took over Israel. And now Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes the king. Now Solomon got a lot of stuff done in Israel, but as we see in this text, the people weren't so pleased with Solomon. And look what happens. In 1 Kings chapter 12, Verse four, these are the people of Israel speaking to Rehoboam. Okay, Solomon's son, your father made your yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us and we will serve you. Look what they're saying. Hey, your father, he had us build a temple. He had us build him a castle. He had us build, you know, this palace, all these different things. But his yoke was heavy and it was burdensome. Hey, Rehoboam, will you be a more lenient king and, and lighten the load? If you lighten the load on us, they say, we'll serve you. And look what happens. Verse 5. So he said to them, depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. Then Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father, Solomon, while he still lived. Okay, so he's, he's just getting ready to die. And he said, how do you advise me to answer these people? 
And they spoke to him saying, if you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. Okay, the people, they petitioned to Rehoboam, hey, if you'll serve us, we'll serve you. And then the elders, they reiterated, hey, if you would dedicate your life to serving these people, they'll serve you forever. You know what happens in the story? What happens next? Rehoboam gets with his buddies and they talk this thing over and his friends say, dude, don't serve the people. You're the king. You know what you should tell them? My father whipped you with whips. We're going to whip you with scourges. In other translations, it says scorpions. So say to the people, we're going to put an even heavier load on you than Solomon did. And you know what happened? That's, this is where the kingdom gets divided. This is where you have Israel and the ten northern tribes and you have Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes. This very act is what divides the kingdom. What's the point? If we're not willing to serve the ones that God entrusts to us, then we're likely going to lose them. That's what happened to Rehoboam. He lost his people. Service is such an important part of ministry and being a spiritual leader because that's the way Jesus did things. And I'll just read this last part of Philemon just to close it out. Philemon verse 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. So he's going to stay with Philemon. There's intimacy there, obviously. For I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark. Look at all these guys. Epaphras, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. In the beginning, the first teaching, we talked about how he mentions Timothy. And as he's discipling Philemon, he's also discipling Timothy and how to disciple Philemon. But now we see here that we got other guys too. You got Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke. What does this imply? Paul was dedicated to disciple people. So he lived for, was doing ministry and discipling people because he understood what the Great Commission was. Now, I'm not asking any of you to be Paul the Apostle, right? He's a great example to look to. But when you look at how many people he invested into and how dedicated he was to disciple, there's something we can learn from that. I'm not going to ask you to, hey, disciple four, five, six, ten, twenty, a hundred people. But I really want you to pray about discipling one person. And by the start of the new year, by January 1st, I really want you to take the next few weeks and pray, hey, God, is there someone that's in my life, or you're going to place in my life that you want me to invest into. And make that one of your New Year's resolutions, if you will. I'm going to invest into someone. I'm going to, I'm going to take what God's entrusted to me, and I'm going to invest it into someone else. And this doesn't mean, you don't need to be a pastor. You don't need to be a, a teacher. The apostles, the disciples, they were never pastors or teachers in the beginning. They were fishermen. They were common men. God made them into something. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And he can do that with anyone. It's just the willing heart to engage in it. So please pray and ask, hey, God, is there someone that you would like me to invest into in this coming new year? As well, I strongly encourage you to to seek someone that that would maybe invest in you too. Because we all need discipleship, me included. 
So I still talk to Pastor Chad every week. He still disciples me. He still invests into me because I know that I, I know that I need it. I need to grow. And again, if I'm not being challenged to grow, my growth might be limited. So it's important that we have that person that's investing into us as well. So pray about that. And you might say, well, I don't know who it would be. I promise you, I know for a fact that there's people at this church, men and women that are willing, it would love to disciple you. Maybe it's just meeting on a, a somewhat consistent basis, but be open to it. Pray about it. It could be one of the pastors. It could be one of the women's ministry leaders, but just pray about that and ask God to give you the boldness to, to step up and speak out because we're called to be disciples again that make disciples. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this <clears throat> letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. God, there's so much to learn from this, Lord, and he was discipling him. God, just as you disciple us and you call us to disciple others, Lord, I pray that you would just give us that same heart, Lord, your heart to invest in other people. God, whether they're older than us or younger than us or the same age of us, Lord, whoever you bring in our life, I pray that we would be willing to invest into them what you've invested into us. In your name, amen.